the pastor's heart and Dominic Steele and the link between the freedom of conscience, religious freedom, and the things they never taught me in Church History One, or the journey from Tertullian to Thomas Jefferson, or how the issues of religious liberty and freedom of conscience don't actually spring out of the Enlightenment, but from the pages of the New Testament. My guest on The Pastor's Heart today, Dr. Sarah Irvine Stonebreaker, who has caused quite a splash this week with her Richard Johnson lecture on Thursday night. She's a Christian, she's a senior lecturer in modern European history and teaches in history and political thought at the University of Western Sydney. Sarah, thanks for coming in. Um, I want to chase out with you the line of thinking from the New Testament through to Tertullian, through to Calvin's offside of Breezer, and then to thinking in the UK, France, Australia, and those kind of places. But perhaps we could start with the pastor's heart. And um, what's been happening on your heart this last season? Yeah, this has been, I think because of COVID, it's been a really difficult season for a lot of people and a lot of churches. I think um, it's been a particularly difficult season for my church. And that's really been what's on my heart. We lost um, our senior minister, Greg Peasley. I know also a really dear friend mm. of yours too, Dominic, um, a month or so ago um, to brain cancer. And so what has been on my heart is just trying to walk with God and with God's people through this time of immense suffering and just trying to keep, as Greg always reminded us, to keep pointing ourselves back to Jesus and his promises and pointing us and his grieving family back to the Lord as well. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I think at the funeral for Greg was the first time I saw you, but um, uh, that funeral... And hearing Greg's son Blake speak, I, I thought it was one of the most encouraging addresses I've heard in my life. Do you know, hearing that young man speak of the way God had worked through his father. Yeah. And um, I'm imagining that, that, I mean, it's not just hearing that talk and the impact that's had in your church, but seeing Greg and Sue's life in your church. Tell us about that. Yeah. I mean, I think... When Blake, Greg's son, gave that eulogy, what we saw in action was the fact that, you know, here is a young man whose dad has been taken away and yet at the end of the day he has hope and he trusts in, in God and therefore he has, even amidst all the grief and sadness and suffering, he and the rest of his family and the people who know and loved Greg have a joy that circumstances cannot destroy. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Um, we will go um, and put the link to that eulogy yeah. in the show notes of this program for those who might want to go and check that out. Let's come now to um, the issues of religious freedom and religious conscience. And um, perhaps you could take us back to, to Turlian and Church History One. And lots of us ministers studied him in Church History One. And giant early church thinker. As I was listening to your address this week, um, I tried to put together what you said and my Church History One notes from 1994. And my Church History One notes were all about the Trinity and you were all about religious freedom. Tell me about religious yeah. freedom and Tertullian. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's absolutely true that Tertullian was so significant theologically. Um, but I think one of the things that's so fascinating and something that we sometimes forget about Tertullian is that he is the first person to use the word, at least uh, that we have the source still today, from Latin translated into English, the phrase that we would translate as religious freedom, freedom of religion. 
And this is sometimes, I think, forgotten because Tertullian uses this phrase in a work that isn't explicitly theological in his Apologeticus. So it's part apologetics, but really it's also a polemical critique of the way that the Romans were persecuting Christians. Mm -hmm. And what he argues is really, really significant. He argues that every human being ought to have the right to worship according to his conscience. Mm -hmm. And that is, I mean, today... Which is basically the bedrock of religious freedom today. It is. And to some extent today, we think that 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 idea is so kind of normative, it's enshrined in the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights, for example. But in the ancient world, what Tertullian was arguing was absolutely radical and kind of baffling to the Romans. He was arguing that every person has a conscience and that fundamentally as human beings created in God's image, we are truth seekers. And because of that, we ought to have this freedom to worship. And this is a novel, central to central to the way that we think about these ideas today, but absolutely novel and baffling in the ancient world. And I don't think the penny had dropped for me until your lecture. I mean, I mean, he got it from the pages of the New Testament yep. and not from modern enlightenment thinking. <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely right. I think one of the reasons, uh, or at least we kind of tend to think of religious freedom in kind of two ways or kind of two like myths mm -hmm. about religious freedom. One is, and this is actually something that I subscribe to even as a historian, um, but before I became a Christian, while I was an atheist, was just this kind of idea that all reasonable people would agree that there are certain kind of basic rights or entitlements that we all have, that's something all reasonable people agree on. That idea doesn't have a history, it just is, like it's mm -hmm. just a kind of philosophical truism. And, that's and actually so we a had myth. religious freedom plonked on us now. We've got it, yeah. Yeah, and that's it's like always existed. Mm. And that is a complete myth. It's got a long history like we were just mm -hmm. intimating. Um, and the other kind of uh, myth about it is that it was kind of an invention of secular humanism, which in itself is kind of a fiction, mm. but um, that it's a kind of secular, it's a non-Christian idea, sprung out of the Enlightenment in the 18th century. But again, complete myth. It goes back actually to the early church fathers and also, of course, the way that they were using the idea of the human being and the necessity of worshipping God and becoming a follower, a disciple of Jesus, based upon a faith that we are a community of believers, which, of course, they're getting from the pages of the New Testament. Now, as I prepared to interview you, I, look, I went back and I looked at my Church History One essay on Tertullian, and the question I was assigned was, um, uh, what are the major contributions to Christian thought of Tertullian? And, um, and I had listed five, and then I'd argued why the Trinity was the major one. I'm figuring, but I didn't mention anything about religious freedom. I'm figuring if you were marking my essay, <laughs> you'd mark me down for leaving religious <laughs> yeah. freedom out. Is that right? Oh, gosh. I don't know. I think, look, the, um, the Trinity and his theological contributions are really profound, but I think we shouldn't discount I'm not saying it was more important idea. than yeah. religious freedom. I'm sorry. Yeah. I, wasn't, I wasn't meaning to say religious freedom is more important than the Trinity, but when I'd listed five and yeah. I didn't mention religious yes. freedom, I yep. think you'd like to see religious freedom in that five. Yes, yeah. I would. Because actually this is an idea that then animates the history of Christendom. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's debated and pulled apart and wrestled with for centuries. And it's not until really many, many centuries later that ideas about having the freedom of conscience and free exercise of religion become codified in the law. But this is an idea of freedom of conscience that is absolutely central to actually, not just within the church, but actually how Christ, like Christendom, Western societies, 
have thought about the rights and the certain basic entitlements that human beings have. And I think we, we tend to forget that. So take me from, through the line of thinking. We'll, we'll chase this line okay. through from Tertullian through to what happens in the medieval period here. Yeah. So, okay, again, it's a very complex history. So I'm like really summarising and yet ironing out complexity. But um, in the medieval period, you have really the development of a tradition of what's called natural law. Mm -hmm. And this is kind of the idea that there are certain basic entitlements, there are certain basic laws and entitlements that exist because, because law or law comes from God. And they are natural and therefore that all people are entitled to them. And so you have this kind of natural law tradition that Christian thinkers are beginning to argue that all people, even people who are, for example, at the margins of society, have certain natural rights. And that is a really, again, a really radical, a really countercultural idea when you realise that the prevailing society and mores at the time are that, you know, the weak deserve to be weak, the poor and the widows, quite to the contrary of what the Bible tells us, are sort of at the, um, ought to be at the margins of society and so forth. So there's that really strong tradition that, well, maybe all people have natural rights. Mm -hmm. I think actually one of the best examples of this is that there, so during, when the Spanish Empire was going into mm -hmm. the Americas, there's a young, uh, a young man, young Christian man, Bartolome de las Casas. And originally, Bartolome de las Casas goes into the Americas and actually participates as one of the conquistadors. They are enslaving uh, the native peoples. So he goes to Hispaniola, he goes to Cuba. And yet then, actually through being confronted with Ecclesiastes 34, really confronted with a passage um, from the Bible that says God is not pleased, to paraphrase, um, God is not pleased with any sacrifice or anything offered to him that is that exploits or um, exploits the downtrodden. Bartolome then engages with natural law tradition mm -hmm. and basically says, realises, actually, these Native Americans cannot be enslaved. They are human beings made in God's image and they are entitled to certain natural rights, among which is freedom of conscience, the freedom not to accept a baptism. Mm -hmm. And so then he actually goes back to Spain and becomes a thorn in the side of the Spanish Empire, arguing that all people, including Native Americans, um, are actually made in God's image and have certain fundamental basic natural rights. I mean, that is a radical argument, mm. right? It, it wants to upend the very basis of imperialism and the exploitation and slavery of others. But where does Bartolome de las Casas get it from? He gets it from from the Bible. Mm. He can only make that argument because he knows that not only are all people made in God's image, but the life of one person is no more valuable or less valuable than the life of another, regardless mm -hmm. of their skin colour or where they live or their disability. Or That is the most radical idea, by the way, in, in history. It comes from the Bible. But yeah, so in the medieval time, in that, well, this is sort of the end of the Middle Ages, beginning of the early modern period, there is a natural, there's a tradition of natural rights where Christian scholars are beginning to argue that all people have certain basic natural rights. Now, they're not very often arguing that they should be codified in law. That's a kind of much later development. But there's the existence, they argue, that there's a natural law. Mm. Now, take me forward 50 years to Calvin's successor, Beza, and yep. he really moved the argument forward again. Yes. Yeah, so in the aftermath of the Protestant Reformation... You, you really get the idea that conscience is at the heart of an individual Christian's decision to follow God. Mm -hmm. Again, it's an idea that is 
is, of course, at its heart biblical. Mm. It's, in, it's particularly in Paul's letters. But in the Reformation, you see this idea really becoming so central to people like Luther and Calvin. So Theodore de Beza, um, who's Calvin's successor in mm -hmm. Geneva that you just mentioned, he and a couple of others, um, people like John Locke, the famous English philosopher, what they start doing is coming up with the idea that all people are given by God certain natural rights and that actually when people come together and form a government, in a, like in a Christian, a Christian commonwealth, a Christian government, it's actually the duty of the government to protect those certain basic rights. And actually this, I think, and I often say to my university students, um, I love to kind of point out that how, how fascinating this idea is. Because on the one hand, today, those of us who are blessed enough to live in Western liberal democracies mm -hmm. where we do have governments, this idea that governments protect certain basic rights that we have, that is a fundament, that's an idea that we just kind of take for granted. Yeah. But that's an idea with a, with a history. It emerges at a certain historical moment after the Reformation. At this moment. <laughs> yeah. 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 And that's put into practice in various different ways in different parts of the world, particularly in, um, in the, some of the early American well, colonies. Well, yeah, take, yeah. Us, take us to Locke and then okay. to the UK and yeah. the, the persecution of the Puritans. Yeah. Yeah. So um, the other thing I think that's really interesting that Locke does is he, is he redefines the church instead of saying, um, or actually really the best way of understanding what he does is saying the church is really just a gathering Actually, of believers. Should, I should family. wind back yep. a bit. Um, some people listening, watching, who is John Locke? Oh, yeah. yeah. So <laughs> Locke is a really famous uh, English philosopher and he's most well known for writing about religious toleration, mm -hmm. writes a number of letters on toleration, they're called. And he also writes very famously about uh, the nature and basis of government and, mm -hmm. yeah, the fact that government is really about a con. A, covenant or a contract between the people and the government in order to protect certain basic rights that people have. Really one of the formative political philosophers. Mm -hmm. Then the persecution under King James of the religious nonconformists. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So the interesting thing about the Church of England is that... Yeah. So we're 17th century. Yeah. yeah 17th yeah, century. Yeah. Well, ever since the Church of England joined the Reformation there was this kind of struggle in this question, well, how do we enforce, like, what do we, how do we grapple with religious diversity? And it's kind of anachronistic to stand in the 21st century and say, not that this excuses the, the persecution of non-conforming mm -hmm. Christians and Catholics and so forth, but it's kind of anachronistic to think about a society based upon a multiplicity of religions that really didn't happen in the mm -hmm. 17th century. And at least their understanding of how you maintain civil order is that, well, you you maintain civil order by conforming religion. Mm. So the Church of England became incredibly uh, legalistic in enforcing conformity. So through all kinds of acts through Parliament, like called the text, Test mm -hmm. Acts, for example, people had to conform to the rights and the beliefs of the, the 39 Articles and the Church mm -hmm. of England. And if you didn't, you were persecuted. Mm -hmm. um, and as yeah, many people know, people uh, escaped persecution, went to the Netherlands, and then often went to America too, those people called the Puritans. Mm. And those Puritan fathers in America, um, some of their thinking on religious freedom, tell us about the formative issues there. Yes. Well, in many ways, the Puritans in early America are grappling too with this idea of 
how do we kind of construct a Christian state in which people have the ability to follow their own beliefs, Go their own way. Go their own yeah, they way. don't have to go our way. Yes. Yeah. And really, I think one of the most colourful characters and really important thinkers of this period is a man named Roger Williams. Williams was um, part of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, but then because he argued not only for freedom of conscience, but for free, what we now call the free exercise of religion. In other words, the freedom to live according to one's conscience. Mm-hmm. He, was, uh, he had to flee the Massachusetts Bay Colony and eventually through actually befriending Native Americans and buying a parcel of land from them, established a new colony uh, called Providence and then later renamed Rhode Island. And what he does, which is really historically significant in that colony, is he, est- he has no established church. So he basically establishes a colony and has complete freedom of religion and free exercise in that colony. So basically... The he was really is, the pioneer of that line of thinking in the US. In terms of putting it into practice, yes. And there's actually a fascinating quotation um, from one of his works where he talks about even the most pagan, if you're Jewish um, and... Non, so non-Christian, he's also mm-hmm. talking about Muslims in this quotation. He really believes in a free exercise of religion. And interestingly, the reason he does that is because he, as a Christian, believes that, well, what God wants is a sincere belief. We have to enable that freedom for people to pursue the truth and to practice that belief because there's no point in forcing belief with the sword. You cannot compel belief with the sword because then you don't create true believers anyway. Mm-hmm. Now, um, I was a little surprised as I was tracking through your lecture and you then uh, introduced Thomas Jefferson yeah. and um, and I wasn't surprised that Thomas Jefferson had a big role to play in the US there, yeah. but I hadn't actually reflected on the role that Jefferson played in France and then how that played out. So perhaps you could give us Jefferson and then what he did for France and what he did for the US. Yeah. I think the reason why someone like Jefferson is so important is that if you stand back for a moment and look at the sort of the big story that we're telling, like freedom of religion, how's this concept have a history? One of the main processes that happened is that these ideas, fundamentally Christian at their inception from the New Testament, we all have a conscience. God wants us with our conscience to be convicted about sin and so forth. Um, but what happens is that as the centuries, particularly the 18th century rolls onwards, there's a kind of process of secularising these ideas. Mm-hmm. And that's where Jefferson's so important because you have ideas about freedom of conscience in, for example, the um, French Declaration of the mm-hmm. Rights of Man and Citizen in the French Revolution. But there they're kind of ostensibly secular in the sense that there's no explicit reference to God. And yet underneath them is the belief that we're entitled to these rights in the first place because there is a creator God who gave us mm. rights. So, yeah, that's where Jefferson's really important. Jefferson was, so when the United States is newly founded in the 1780s, Jefferson becomes the representative of the United States to France. He goes and lives in Paris Mm. on the eve of the revolution and actually uh, begins to draft and helps draft um, the, together with the ABCAs and Marquis de Lafayette, the French Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen. Mm -hmm which is where many of us assume today we get our modern understandings, and it's a really important document, of the nation, the nature of um, various rights. Freedom of conscience and religion is sort of marginally Well, you're arguing that. we can trace it all the way back to the yeah, New Testament. Yeah, yeah, we can. <laughs> yeah. Because the key thing about this is 
even when you kind of secularise these ideas in the sense that, what, and what I mean by that is, take out the explicit theological references. Mm -hmm. And so let's maintain like the carapace, the shell of these ideas. Well, all people are entitled to rights. But it, at their heart, if you actually probe that, it all falls down unless you, on some level, maintain that, well, the reason we have rights in the first place is because we're created in God's image. Yeah. And the reason that I don't have any more or fewer rights than a person of a different skin colour or with a disability is because God created, there's no, neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female. Mm. We are all of equal moral worth in Christ. So those ideas are maintained at their core, but the theology is mm -hmm. slowly denuded. Now, why did it play out so differently in France to America? Yeah, okay, that's really fascinating. Again, really big historical questions. Um, <laughs> look, in a nutshell, the simple answer to that question is that America at its founding established a, a state that in, intended to privatise particular denominations. So there's no official denomination in America. There's no established mm -hmm. church. But the intention behind that was to foster a multiplicity of denominations and mm -hmm. religions, what's often referred to um, in America as a kind of marketplace of ideas. Mm -hmm. And the idea is, well, that will enable sort of a flourishing of religion. In France, the, the tradition, and many, much of it is kind of forged in the French Revolution, the revolution radicalises and actually endures a phase that historians call dechristianization, where they mm -hmm. eventually get to the point where they want to rid France of religion completely. Mm -hmm. And so the way that the modern French sort of government has developed is based upon this idea that there's a kind of secularism in France, which means that you purge the public sphere of all things religious, that that tradition has not been the case in the United States. So you have a very different history there. And why yeah. not? Just give me the, what, in a nutshell, in one sentence, if you had to say, why? Well, because in the United States, there's this belief that you have a kind of flourishing democracy and public sphere when you have a multiplicity of religions and you can kind of partake in that regardless of what your beliefs mm -hmm. are. In France, the notion of public life has developed, often the, the term the secular, this sort of for French secularism in French, laicite, is kind of this idea that um, it works it works best when we just have no reference to religious arguments or religion mm -hmm. whatsoever. Gotcha. Hence the contemporary discussions about, well, can we wear religious symbols in public, mm. the hijab, the cross, yeah. um, the Star of David. Now come over to Australia and okay, uh, yeah. the Australian Constitution. And um, uh, you drew my attention to this line the com from the Australian Constitution. The Commonwealth shall not make any law for establishing any religion or for imposing any religious observance or for prohibiting the free exercise of any religion and no religious test shall be required as a qualification for any office or public trust under the Commonwealth. How does the constitutional grounding for religion in Australia differ from, say, the US and other places? Yeah, yeah that's a really fascinating question. Partly because, in some ways, the text of Section 116, which you read out of the Constitution, is very much influenced by the First Amendment to the United States Constitution, mm -hmm which talks about not having a religious test for public office and so forth. Um, and yet historically, section 116 is part of the constitution and it's articulated as a limitation on the powers of the Commonwealth. Mm -hmm. So to put it another way, section 116 as it, at its heart is, here's what the Commonwealth government can't do. Mm -hmm. 
But the reason that's different from what religious freedom looks like in America is that religious freedom in our constitution is not protected as an actual individual right. Mm -hmm. So like I can't turn to our constitution and say, I have a right because, in the way that Americans can say, turn to the, what, so the amendments to the constitution in America are called their Bill of Rights. Mm -hmm. So an American can turn to that and say, hey, listen, um, the First Amendment says I have this right too. Mm -hmm. So in Australia, we have this kind of history where there are limitations upon the fact that the government, our federal government, cannot tomorrow say um, there is now an official religion in Australia and it is X or an official mm -hmm. denomination. And so that protects freedom to some extent, but it does protect it as a right. And indeed, even historically, the way that the High Court has interpreted Section 116 has been very much in that federalist tradition of limiting the Commonwealth's powers rather than thinking about enabling rights, if that makes sense. Mm. Yeah. That's very interesting. Um, so, I mean, really what you've done in this lecture is you've rewritten the church history course. I didn't intend... <laughs> yeah, um, I didn't intend to do that. But I think one of the things, just kind of reflecting on all of this history as a Christian, is that when we recognise just how significant a biblical understanding of human value is and how important conscience is to the Christian picture of who we are as human beings. We are, we are truth seekers. Mm. Realising how central that has been to the history of the world and particularly the history of those struggles to which the idea of rights has been central, I find it really encouraging as a Christian because it equips me to actually be able to say, well, listen, actually, you know, when we talk about rights and even to say to my, you know, to non-Christian friends to lo kind of lovingly bring this up and say, oh, actually, these, these ideas are actually at their core, they rely upon a Christian understanding that actually, mm. you know, our lives are inherently valuable because we bear the image of God mm -hmm. um, and that they're equally valuable because in Christ we are all equal. And so it's, I find it very encouraging as a Christian to recognise that these ideas, central to the, like, biblical ideas, actually have a significance for world history. And that equips me to be able to, I hope, con you know, contribute to public conversations about these things and also kind of lovingly challenge non-Christian, my non-Christian friends. Mm. Thanks so much for coming to talk to us. Oh, thanks for having me. It's been great. My guest on The Pastor's Heart, Sarah Irving Stonebreaker. And uh, of course, she is a senior lecturer in modern European history and teaches in history and political thought at the University of Western Sydney. You've been with us on The Pastor's Heart and we will look forward to your company next week. Hey, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, we would love it if you could hop over to the Apple Podcasts app and give us a rating and review. That helps us in the rankings and lets other people discover the pastor's heart. And again, if you are able to help us out by being a financial partner, go to our Patreon link, patreon.com slash the pastor's heart.